you read about times in history where there was mass revivals, where God you know, pours out his spirit and lives are changed and communities are changed and, and churches come alive. And, you know, we could spend a lot of time looking at those over history, but, you know, there's a couple that are pretty well known. One of them is the Great Awakening, that revival that swept across uh, the American colonies in the mid-18th century. And Jonathan Edwards was a pastor at that time. He was a big part of that revival. And uh, some, some of the people that observed what happened, especially in Jonathan Edwards' church in Massachusetts in 1734, listen to, this is just a comment of an observation of what they saw happening. And I want you just to kind of put yourself there, put on some imagination of what it would look like to see something like this happen. They said it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitude of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold, and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace. Just, an, just hearts coming alive. Uh, I'll read you an excerpt from one that happened in Denver, Colorado. This was in 1905. And what I'm going to read to you is an article in the Denver Post. This is the, the newspaper. On January 20th, 1905, listen to the to title to this article. Entire city pauses for prayer even at the high tide of business. Listen to this. Remarkable outburst of gospel sentiment. Noonday meetings draw congregations unprecedented numbers. For two hours at midday, all Denver was held in a spell. The markets of trade were deserted between noon and two o'clock this afternoon, and all worldly affairs were forgotten. And the entire city was given over to meditation of higher things. The spirit of the Almighty pervaded every nook. Seldom has such a remarkable sight been witnessed. An entire great city in the middle of a busy weekday, bowing before the throne of heaven and asking and receiving the blessing of the king of the universe. What would that look like? What does it look like when the Holy Spirit moves in such a powerful way that people come alive, that people come to know Christ, that churches are changed, that communities are changed? The story of Nehemiah is a story of revival. It's a story of profound revival of God's people. And as we read it in Nehemiah 1, you're gonna see that you see what is, what is at the foundation of such a revival? Like, what are the characteristics? What are the core pieces of a revival when God moves in a miraculous way in individual lives, but also in broader churches and communities? So if you would, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter one. If you don't have a Bible in your order of worship, you'll see the, the sermon scripture printed there. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept 
and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Here it is, Nehemiah 1. This, this describes the beginnings of revival, the beginning of life being restored to God's people, to the community of his people. And we're gonna see here, as we look at this chapter, you're gonna see some seeds of revival, seeing sin and brokenness, lamenting it, confessing it, and then remembering God's promise. So let's start with seeing sin and brokenness. Nehemiah, just to give you context here, he's in the, the city of Susa. That was in Persia, which, which was Babylon, which is where God's people had been in exile. And so he's getting word back from Jerusalem, from people that had returned to him, telling him the state of affairs in Jerusalem, and it's bad. People are full of trouble, they're full of shame. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Let me just give you a snapshot, because this is gonna help you understand this book and where it sits in the big scale of, of history. God, ever since Genesis three, when sin entered the world, God set out to rescue his world and rescue his people. And he started with a small group of people that moved into Egypt and were under awful slavery in Egypt. Then they were delivered out of Egypt by God through the Red Sea. And coming out of the Red Sea, they had what should have been a one week's journey from the Red Sea to the Promised Land. But because of their sin and rebellion, it took 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness. They finally cross the Jordan. They enter the Promised Land. And God sets up a period, and there's a season of what are called judges. We just read through it in community Bible reading where God sends judges to rescue them out of their sin and rebellion. And you just see the book of Judges, it is just up and down. They sin and rebel, God sends someone to rescue them. Then we move from the judges to the time of the kings. That was over five centuries of time in Israel's history where God sent kings to rule over Israel. That came to a, a, a tragic end in 586 BC when God sent his people into exile in Babylon. They were there for about 70 years before God returned them to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up. The beginning of the wave of the return was Ezra. He came in and they rebuilt the temple. And now we get to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is gonna return and help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But that's where we're sitting in the context of history. And Nehemiah, 
gets word that Jerusalem is, is broken down and that the people there are in great trouble and shame. Now, let me just give you three, I'm gonna call these hooks to, to hang everything on as we start to move through this story, this amazing, beautiful story of revival that's gonna help you understand the, the whole picture and what its relevance is for today. Number one, this is a story about, as I mentioned, God continuing to gather his children and build his family out of a broken world, broken lives being restored, right? He's rebuilding his family, and part of that is him sending his people into exile, which he did. He sent them into exile in Babylon. They were kind of, they were torn down to the roots so that he could rebuild them. And now we're seeing a picture of him rebuilding his family. But this is about God building his family. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. Today, it's the church. You, me, us, rebuilding his family. Number two, while God is sovereign and he sent Israel into exile, the reason they went into exile was because of their sin and their rebellion. Let me read you the, the picture of where God's people were at right before they went into exile, into Babylon. And this comes out of 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 to 16. Listen to this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, his prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. And so Babylon came in and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. So what you see is the destruction of Jerusalem the destruction of the temple is symbolic of the absolute sin and rebellion that was in the heart of God's people. Number three, third truth, just to hang, to hang on a hook here, the broken down state of Jerusalem that Nehemiah is gonna walk back into is not parallel to the broken down state of our world today. The world is clearly broken. There, there's no doubt about that. But the parallel here is Broken Jerusalem, right? The continuity of the scriptures is that Israel and Jerusalem move towards the New Testament church. The broken down Jerusalem is parallel to broken down church today. And so what we see here is not first and foremost a blueprint of how to go rebuild our world. That's important. That's part of the Great Commission. God calls us to that. But what this story is, is the bigger problem not of out there in the world, but inside of God's church and the sin that is destroying and, 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 and corrupting God's church and his people. This is, a, this is a story about the revival of God's family and the revival of his church. And so that's the, that's the first element that we see here in revival is actually seeing sin and brokenness. Not just seeing it out there, but seeing it inside the church. That that's the that's what God wants to do. He wants to bring revival inside, in the hearts of his people, that, our, that his people would come alive to the truth of who he is. You know, the, the, the walls of the church are broken down, and you say, how? How are the walls of the church broken down? So that as we read this story of revival, God bringing revival to broken down Jerusalem, we're really reading a story of God bringing revival to the broken walls of the church. How is the, how is the church broken? We could go to the obvious, the obvious sins. We could go to sexual sin. We could go to the public scandals that have rocked both the Protestant and Catholic churches 
We're all aware of those. They're on the news, they're in the newspapers. But those are symptomatic of a much deeper or deeper disease in the church. And I'm gonna speak of just two. Two bedrock diseases in the church, and that is consumerism and independence. And let me explain those, because these at the core represent the broken down walls of the church, right? Consumerism, that is this. The world exists to make me happy and to meet my needs. That is the definition of consumerism. So if a friend or a spouse or a job or a church doesn't meet my needs and make me happy, I kick it to the curb and I move on. And that's consumerism. And I'll tell you, in our church, in our day, in the West, here in America, that absolutely plagues the church, is this consumerism. Because at the heart of consumerism is, I'm on the throne, and everyone and everything and everybody exists to worship me and to meet my needs and make me happy, okay? I'll give you an example. This is live, live practice in churches, okay? In an attempt to get people to give more, to tithe to a church, because they have people that aren't tithing, it's called the 90-day the challenge. And it goes like this. Church will challenge its people. If you will tithe, tithe 10%, if you'll tithe for 90 days, if God doesn't bless you in those 90 days, we'll give you your money back. Now, you're, you're laughing. That's real. That's consumerism. Listen, that's, that's not even a, a gospel that's gotten distorted a little bit. That's no gospel. That's actually how all the religions of the world work, is that you can manipulate God, that you can buy God off, that you can behave in a certain way, that you can give in a certain way, whatever it may be, to get God to act. That, that's called pagan religion. That's not the gospel at all. And yet consumerism. I mean, it's, you know, you go to a department store. Customer's right, right? Customer's always right. You can take anything back. You could take a rock back to a department store and get money back for it. Say, I bought this here. No, we don't sell rocks. No, I did, I bought it here. Okay, here's your money, okay? That's not the gospel. That's not the church, okay? So that's consumerism, number one. Second, independence. Now, this is a hard one to detect. Independence is hard to detect because it, it, it flies behind or it, it masks itself behind good endeavors, good disciplines, good practices. It masks itself behind plans, behind strategies. And this one is particularly a church that has competent people, this, is, this, is, this church is vulnerable to that, right? That we just plan our way, we strategize our way. We talked about it probably close to a year ago now of how churches can become functionally independent of just operating, and our lives can be that way. It's hard to detect. Here's how you detect it. It's by its effects, and that is prayerlessness and pride. Now, prayerlessness and pride are real. And those are the down, that's the, 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 the down product or the byproduct of independence. You sum those up, summary of those two diseases, consumerism and independence. It's all about me and it's all up to me. Okay? It's all about me and it's all up to me. So number one, first element of revival is actually seeing sin and brokenness and seeing the, the deep diseases that exist in, in our hearts and in a community of faith. 
The second element is actually caring. <laughs> it's actually seeing sin and brokenness and actually caring about it, lamenting it, grieving it. That's what we see Nehemiah do here. Look at verse four. As soon as I heard these words, he gets this report that God's people are in trouble and they're in shame. The walls are broken down. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, interesting to look at Nehemiah's response because how, how would have, just hypothetically speaking, how would have Nehemiah responded out of the, the disease of consumerism and or independence? Consumerism. Nehemiah would have said, hey, well, yeah, they're my people, but hey, I'm in Persia now. I'm the cupbearer to the king, which we're gonna see. That was an influential position. Uh, I'm the cupbearer to the king. Those, that's back in Jerusalem, out of sight, out of mind, doesn't bother me. Why should I care? That's consumerism, okay? It's not affecting me and my happiness. Independence would say, well, let's get to it. Pull the people together, let's make a plan, let's go, let's go take care of it, right? Nehemiah doesn't either. Says he wept for days. He mourned, he fasted, he prayed. Now, we could all say, okay, I see the sin, I see the brokenness, I see the, the consumerism in my own heart, I see the independence in my own heart. Now, grieve, weep, be like Nehemiah. The problem is that'll never get you to weep or grieve because Nehemiah, we're not like Nehemiah. We are the people back in Jerusalem that are in trouble, that are full of shame. Nehemiah is the one that God's raising up to go rescue them. It's what we see throughout the Old Testament. God sends Moses. Then he sends prophets like Samuel. Then he sends judges. He sends kings like David. He sends people like Ezra and Nehemiah to go rescue people who are broken down. And so all these people are a picture of the greater, and Nehemiah, a picture of the greater one that's to come. Nehemiah is a picture of the greater Nehemiah to come, and that's Jesus Christ, who wept, who fasted, who prayed when he saw our miserable, wretched condition in sin. Matthew chapter four, Jesus Christ is led out to the desert by the Spirit to be tempted by the evil one for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus resisted the devil's temptation. Unlike our first parent, Adam, who did not resist the devil's temptation in the garden, Jesus was obedient. He fasted and was obedient for 40 days in the desert. Unlike Israel, who was disobedient in the desert for 40 years, right? Jesus fasted and was obedient for you. Or you move to Luke chapter 19, where it says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the state of affairs in Jerusalem, over the unbelief. In the parallel passage in Matthew 23, where it talks about Jesus lamenting, listen to what he says. Jesus says, how I long to gather you as children, like a hen gathers her little ones under her wings, but you persisted in your sin and unbelief. 
Jesus wept over that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed with such fervor and such anguish that it caused him to sweat drops of blood. He was praying in his humanity for strength to go to the cross and accomplish your salvation. Jesus wept. He fasted. He prayed. And then he moved to the cross. And when you read the last week of Jesus' life and what he went through, from the flogging, his, his, his passion week, the flogging, to the beating, to the mocking, to the hanging on the cross and to the dying. He did that, Hebrews says, with great joy because he knew it was gonna accomplish your salvation. But all that he went through was because of your sin and my sin and our rebellion. Say, what causes you to mourn and to weep over your sin and brokenness? I would encourage you to stop, reflect, meditate on what Jesus did for you. The lengths to which he went to rescue you, that will produce weeping and mourning. Romans 2 says God's kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness, his generosity in Jesus is what leads us to repentance, leads us to mourning and weeping over our sins. So what are the elements of revival? It's seeing sin and brokenness. It's lamenting sin and brokenness. Third, it's confessing sin and brokenness. Look at Nehemiah's confession in verses six to seven. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah prays corporate confession. It's what we do every Sunday in worship when we corporately confess together. Nehemiah prays personal confession. He says, I sin too. Me and my father's house, we've sinned. We've blown it. And what you see here is that confession, confession is at the heart of revival. When you look at all the revivals over history, one of the common denominators is confession, conviction of sin, heavy conviction of sin and confession that flows out of that. In fact, in the 18th century, middle of the 18th century with the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, he, he actually wrote a lot as he saw that unfold and he saw this massive change and this massive, massive conversions. He noted some things about the revival. And, and one of the things he noted is that, that one of the, and, and he says it this way, that one of the greatest single causes of the miscarriage of revivals is pride. He says that pride drastically hinders revival, that it padlocks the spirit. It padlocks the spirit and it shuts the soul off to its own darkness. That's what he, that's what he, he calls pride. And, and of course, pride is what feeds independence. Listen to what he says about pride. You know, he says pride's hard to detect. Pride is really hard to detect. He said you only detect it by looking at its effects what it produces in a life. Listen to this, what he says about the effects. Spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others. Whereas a humble 
believer is most jealous of himself. He is so suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The spiritually proud person is apt to find fault with other saints, that they are low in grace, and to be much in observing how cold and dead they are, and being quick to discern and take notice of their deficiencies. But the eminently humble believer has so much to do at home that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. Pride is what produces consumerism, it's what produces independence, and it's what produces us being focused on others and their deficiencies and not our own. Confession, corporate, personal, particular, not just general confession, but particular confession of sin is the seed of revival. And yet I am convinced that we don't do confession well. We don't do it well. I was putting my son to bed the other night. We had just finished reading the Bible story about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and how Jesus met him, invited him to his house, and then and Zacchaeus repents, and he turns. And so I, I said to my son, I said, I said, son, daddy sins all the time and has to repent. And he said, no, you don't. <laughs> I wish you were right. <laughs> wish you were right, son. And then, then he said this, mommies and daddies don't sin. Okay, time out. We've got a problem here. You know, my wife and I have worked really hard on the discipline of repentance, that we, we, we want to repent before our kids. But that was evidence that, that is, it's not just a one-time thing. It is continual over and over. One of the worst things that can happen is for a child to grow up never remembering or hearing one of their parents or both their parents admit wrong, confess it, and repent. If a child grows up in that environment, they are destined to moralism and not the gospel. Confession is so critical to the revival of your own heart, to the revival of your family, to the revival of a church, is the confession of sin. It revives the soul. Not only vertical confession, but horizontal confession. James chapter five, verse 16 says this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another and be healed. That confession is not complete if it's only vertical. Confession is not complete if it's only horizontal. Confession is complete when it is vertical and horizontal. It brings healing, though it hurts. It brings healing, though it's painful. Why do we resist confessing our sin to one another? Why do we resist confessing our sin to one another? It's because we're ashamed. It's embarrassing to confess that kind of deep, dark secret in the heart. It's embarrassing. In some ways, and it should be just the opposite, in some ways it's easier to confess to God and not to tell somebody else. When you have to look somebody else in the face, you're faced with the, the sheer shame of your sin. Confession is both vertical and horizontal. It's painful. You ever cut yourself and poured hydrogen peroxide on an open wound? It doesn't feel good. It, it hurts. But then what happens? 
You pour it on an open wound, then you see that white fizz. You know what the white fizz means? It means that that bacteria that wants to infect your wound and bring prolonged pain is being destroyed. That's what the white fizz means. And it hurts, but you see the fizz and you go, yes. The bad stuff is being destroyed. If you don't pour hydrogen peroxide on an open wound, right, that bacteria festers. It infects the wound. It brings prolonged pain. In the same way, if, if you don't confess your sins vertically to God, horizontally to one another, your sin will infect your soul. It will infect your soul and it will bring so much prolonged pain. You know, sin absolutely loves the darkness. It loves isolation. It loves to be in hiding. And Satan loves it as well. But when you confess, you know what happens when you confess your sin, not only to God, but to one another? The shades are drawn. Light comes in, and that's where healing starts to take place. I want to encourage you. That's probably a weak word. I want to implore you that if you've got sin, deep, dark sin that you're holding on to, that you haven't confessed, maybe you've confessed it to God, or, but you haven't confessed it horizontally, I implore you today before the sun goes down to call a friend, to talk to somebody in your community group and set up a time to meet. Don't let sin fester in the darkness and infect your soul. You know, the reason why we don't confess sin, it's the same root core sins, diseases I talked about, consumerism and independence. You know how it works? Consumerism says, I don't want to confess it because I know that means I'll have to change, and it feels too good. I like it, and I don't want to let go of it because it's satisfying me or it's making me happy. That's consumerism. The, the independence says this, you know what? I know what I'm doing is wrong. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I got it under control. I can handle this, right? I can beat this. I can beat this addiction. I can be, I, I'm, I'm okay. The Bible says no. Confess your sins to one another and to God and find healing. What are the elements of revival? It's seeing sin, it's lamenting it, grieving it, confessing it, and finally, remembering God's promise. Now, this is crucial to remember God's promise because remembering this promise that I'm gonna explain is what keeps you from, helps you overcome the fear that keeps you from confessing, and it helps you overcome the insecurities that threaten to ruin you after you confess. Look at verse five. And this is what Nehemiah says before the confession in verses six and seven. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah, before he ever confesses, he rehearses the beautiful, precious promise that God keeps covenant. That means that God keeps his covenant. He never reneges on his promise. What's the covenant? 
Going back to when God makes his covenant with Abraham, when he starts the very beginnings of this family that has grown to what we know it today, God's family. When he makes the covenant with Abram, he, he utilizes or, he, or uses a, very, a practice that was very significant, very common in the ancient Near East. And that is when two people wanted to make a covenant with each other, they would sacrifice an animal. They would cut that animal in half and they would both walk between the animal pieces, effectively saying, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be cut in two, let me die. Except when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he sacrifices, Abraham sacrifices an animal. It is cut in half. Abraham doesn't walk between the animal pieces. Only God does. And by doing so was saying something profound, and it was this. As God walked between those animal pieces, he said, if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, let this happen to me. And guess what, Abraham? If you fail to uphold your end of the covenant, you and your descendants, and you break covenant and you sin, let this happen to me and not you. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus Christ was cut in two. Jesus Christ died in your place, in our place, because we failed. That's when, when, when Nehemiah says God keeps covenant, that's what it means. God keeps his covenant, which says, I am going to pay for your sin. My son will be cut in two. God never reneges on his promises. Verse eight, Nehemiah prays. This is right after six and seven, which is his confession. So you see the confession of sin is bookended. On the front end by God's promise and on the back end in, in, Nehemiah, in verse eight, he says, remember the word of the promise you spoke to Moses. Well, what's the promise? Look at verse nine. If you return to me, and keep my commandments. That's the definition of repentance. Turning from sin, turning to Christ. If you return to me and keep my commandments, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Here's God's promise. In Christ, that means if you're in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted Christ, if you've believed what he did on the cross for you to pay the penalty for your sin, and you've transferred your trust from yourself to Jesus Christ, God's face is turned towards you. And he will never turn his face away from you in Christ. That's the covenant. Now, we turn our faces away from God all the time when we sin. Confession and repentance is that rhythm of turning our faces back to God. His face never turns away in Christ. Dallas Willard talks about his growing up. He lost his mother at a very, very young age. And he tells the story of, as a young child, without his mom, how nights were particularly tough sad and lonely. He was scared. And he talks about in the midst of that sadness and that, that, that fear and that loneliness, how he'd go into his father's room, his daddy's room, and he'd say, Daddy, can I sleep with you tonight? And his dad would welcome him in, but, but he couldn't rest. Just being with his dad wasn't enough. He needed to know that his father's face was turned towards him. And so he would say to his dad, Dad, you know, in the dark, in the room, is your face turned towards me? And his dad would say, yes, son. 
I'm here, you're not alone, and my face is turned towards you. And it was only then that he said he could ultimately rest and go to sleep. The only way that your soul, your chaotic soul, can rest is if you are assured that God's face is turned towards you. And I'll just say it this way. If you're not in Christ, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ, then the Father's face is turned away from you because of your sin. When you trust Jesus Christ and transfer your trust to him and what he did to pay for your sin, to remove your sin, the Father's face is turned towards you. And so if you're not in Christ and you're experiencing turmoil of the soul, chaos, something's just not quite right. Something's not right with my, my life, this world. I'm, 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 I'm at a place of unrest. Listen, as long as the Father's face is turned away from you, that's where you will remain. But the free offer of the gospel says, come to Jesus Christ and trust him and the Father's face will turn towards you and you will find rest for your soul. I will also say this. You only find rest when the Father's face is turned towards you. You also only find rest when your face is turned towards the Father. And so if you're in a place with sin where there is deep, dark sin that you're harboring, that you haven't confessed, that you're afraid to confess, that you wanna hold on to because it just, it's satisfying you, or you don't want, you, just, you wanna handle it yourself because you're, prou you're proud. If you're in that place and your face is turned away from the Father, you're gonna feel unrest and chaos. But let me say this, if you're in Christ, you're, you are confession and repentance away from turning to the Father's face smiling at you because the Father's face doesn't turn away in Christ. And so the message is, confess your sin. And if it's the first time that you're transferring your trust to Christ, praise God and experience the beauty of the Father's face turning towards you. If you're in Christ and you've been in Christ and you're harboring sin and you're in a deep, dark place, before the sun goes down today, call somebody. Call a friend, somebody in your community group, say, we've got to meet, I've got to talk and confess your sin and experience the joy of the shades being drawn and light coming in and your soul beginning to heal. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in your steadfast love. We rejoice that you're a God that doesn't renege on your promise, that you keep covenant, that the evidence of you keeping covenant is sending your son to be crucified in our place. Father, for those that are here that have never transferred their trust to Christ, Holy Spirit, would you draw them that they would turn to Christ and experience the the Father's face turning towards them. Father, for those that are here that maybe have been in Christ for years and are harboring sin out of fear of confessing it or just the joy and pleasure of wanting to hold on to it, oh, Holy Spirit, would you draw them to confess to one another and to you and to have their face turned back to yours. 
and to find that peace and to experience that rest of the soul. Oh, Jesus, we come to you. Your arms open wide, calling us to come to you to confess our sins because you are faithful and just, to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. God, thank you for your promise, the comfort, the assurance that it brings. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.